Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing, so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners. And of course, you got to have great tasting food. You got to have great tasting beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week Stay tuned for this week's episode. Welcome to Winning at Work. It is Tony, and we're in a season now where I am seeing so many new food and beverage brands popping up. And I'm really fascinated how an entrepreneur takes a product from their kitchen. Maybe they move it over to a commercial kitchen, you know, small scale, and then really kind of finalize how the product's going to look and feel and maybe kind of get their marketing kind of in sync with what they're creating and then getting it up to scale. If you don't have this idea really nailed down, the amount of money and the time and energy that you're going to lose is staggering. And of course, small businesses have a limited amount of, of money. It is so important to really understand the space that you're getting into and to make sure your product is viable. I had the pleasure of meeting someone who has a company literally designed to, no pun intended, catapult them into this space very successfully, help them with product design and all kinds of things. And we're going to be getting into this today. It's a topic that I'm really fascinated about and today we're going to be talking with Jamie Valenti Jordan. He is the CEO of Catapult Commercialization Services. And what I find fascinating here is that, you know, one of their taglines for the company is food revolutions don't launch themselves. 
I th- <laughs> by the way, I really like that, Jamie. That's that's pretty clever. Excellent. Thank you. Um, happy to be here. Uh, yeah, so I run Catapult Commercialization Services. Um, it is a team of 75 food industry professionals that are centered around helping emerging and scaling brands uh, do exactly that, launch uh, launch food products. You know, got uh, everything from development all the way through to operational support to get things up and running. So yeah, we've we've kind of seen this whole emergence uh, in the last couple of years of everyone uh, wanting to take their products to market, which is excellent. We we're really happy to to be able to support them in that. Yeah, there there is. There's just a huge upstart and revival in so many of these things. And I just want to um, test your knowledge of Georgia Tech before we go any further. <laughs> as a uh, as a graduate of the of the Georgia Institute of Technology, or as we refer to here in Atlanta, Georgia Tech, what was the, what were the, what was the football team known as long ago? Do you remember what they what they used to be called? Back in the twenties and the thirties. I mean, nowadays they're kind of known as like the what the rambling wreck, right? Before that, what were they known as? Well, originally, uh, well, not originally, but they used to be known as the Yellow Jackets, and before that, they actually were known, I believe, as the as the Hurricanes. Uh, I'm going to get. Oh, you're so close! You are so close on this one. The Golden Tornadoes. That's what it was. And the reason why they ended up shifting the name to Yellow Jackets was because the Golden Tornadoes, they would yell, wear, wear literal yellow jackets to the football games. This is all the fraternity houses and whatnot. They would have these yellow jackets that they would wear, these blazers. Um, and eventually they became known as the Yellow Jackets and eventually changed their mascot over to um, Buzz, which is a uh, yellow jacket, a very feared uh, insect. In the <laughs> it is. The United States, yes. It definitely is feared. Well, there you go. You recovered uh, with the historical reason for changing to Georgia Tech. The reason I even really know that is that my grandfather went to Tech High back in 1918. It was an all-boys mm-hmm. prep school for Georgia Tech, and then he graduated from Georgia Tech in 1922. He was a electrical engineer. Now, you're a chemical engineer, then you went to uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison for master's in food science. So I'm just kind of curious, before we kind of launch into this uh, topic today, or kind of several topics, as an engineer, you, ha- you obviously had a lot of different industries you could choose. Why did you pick food? Um, well, I'm going to actually say I crossed them off the list. So um, as a chemical engineer, um, I had an opportunity very early on in my career to go and work in a textile mill in LaGrange, Georgia, um, southwest of the city. And um, long story short, um, I do not like textiles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Lagrange, I mean, you were just probably sweating five pounds a day down there. Yeah, that is that is hot country. Yeah, that was in a textile mill. Yeah, um, right, right. Yeah, um, and exactly. so uh, uh, second uh, second summer, uh, I had an opportunity through um, Alpha Chi Sigma, which is the chemistry professional fraternity. No laughing. Um, but they, uh, I had a colleague. I just there laughed. Who, sorry. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> supposed to laugh. I'm sorry. You've got a sense of humor though. So you're breaking the mold, Jamie. Come yeah. on, let's keep, yeah. let's just go with it. Yeah. Um, and so, I uh, ended up, uh, getting a interview and then a position with, um, General Mills, uh, up at their headquarters and, um, fell in love with the industry through there, uh, to the point that I 
uh, had a second internship with them, and then uh, uh, came time to um, graduate after I had tried dabbling in microelectronics fabrication. I've got a silicon chip here on my desk that reminds me of that um, experience and the fact that I don't want to be in that industry either. Um, <laughs> you just checked them. You just like checked them all off. Like I don't like that. I don't like that. So we've got food. You know, so food is left. That's right. Um, so I didn't like pharmaceutical. Didn't like uh, uh, petrochemicals. So yeah, I was really kind of left with my favorite, which is great. Um, and so I ended up uh, turning down a, a very cushy job right out of uh, undergrad working for a petrochemical company in order to go back and get my master's at Madison in food uh, because I was passionate about it and wanted to know more before I went into the industry. And, and there it is because there's something about food and beverage that brings out a passion in people. And, and that's what's so great is you get to work with all the entrepreneurs that are just way over the top, of course, passionate about bringing their products to life. Um, again, the way you kind of position your company is, you know, helping food and beverage startup companies get to market faster, you know, avoiding pitfalls. So, you know, why don't we just jump right into it? I know we've got a number of topics that we want to discuss today. When a company is thinking about launching or getting mm -hmm. their brand out and going, don't they need to be kind of looking at, okay, is this market underserved, right? I think you kind of described it as, hey, finding the white space. Is that, I mean, how important is that in, in Food & Bev? Well, um, it's hard to do a Me Too product if you're not substantially differentiated. So what that means is that without having some way in which you are different than everyone that's out there, it's hard to actually play in the space where somebody's already doing it well. Um, so your point of differentiation might be, I can do this better, or um, I have, I see that this group over here wants this feature, uh, and necessarily I know how to put that feature in there and target that group. It's not going to be a, um, it's not going to be a product that will serve everyone's needs. Um, no product serves everyone's needs, not even water. Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of where you have to start and say, this is where uh, I'm going to differ from everything else that's on the market and how I'm going to do it better. You're picking your lane and you're saying, this is where we are going to invest and go when we're going to start in the space. Yep. Traditional marketing will say that that's how you define your niche. Um, so yeah. you need to have some area in which you play that either you are um, not in competition with major major brands in that space, or you're going to do something substantially better than they did. Uh, do you help them identify the white space, and how would you go about doing that? I'd say creating a white space from nothing is very challenging. Um, that's kind of where the passion of the entrepreneur has to come in to kind of lead which starting point we're going to work with. Um, but from there, uh, refining that idea into a concept um, from which you can then, uh, you know, make sure that you're, you're well positioned and then have a product that meets those needs and things like that. Yes, we actually, we, we absolutely help with that. We help with uh, folks that are looking to uh, take their idea, um, refine it down to uh, knowing who their target consumers are, what their use patterns are, uh, so that they can build a product that's actually going to work in the consumer's life, not just be something that's sitting on a shelf. It'll be something that they drive um, drive towards purchase rather than uh, just kind of letting it happen. I'd love to hear 
really what is happening now in terms of trending for product mm-hmm. development? Because I, I know you've got a big board, right? You've got all these different ideas that are, are kind of coming at you. People are trying to you know sort out where to go. Walk us through some of the you know top, I don't know, six, seven product development ideas that are kind of trending right now. I think the hottest thing that I'm seeing right now, and this is, you know, last couple of weeks even, uh, is that a lot of development has gone in recently to develop the next wave of functional proteins. And by that, I mean, from a, from a product perspective, we're looking at the next wave of the plant-based meats, um, plant-based dairy, so yogurts, cheeses, milks, um, and even some alternative um, products in, let's say, plant-based egg and other other sectors. So um, there's certainly a lot of uh, movement um, in that space. So we're seeing that, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through this whole generational um, uh, development of, of protein. So plant-based 1.0 was Morningstar, you know, many years ago. They did a great job of kind of establishing that market. Um, that was, sorry, many decades ago at this point. Um, but they didn't do much to kind of grow it because the technology wasn't there to kind of push it along. There have been some further developments, which is why we now have the big three, um, that's soy, wheat, and pea, uh, all of which then support the uh, evolution of what we see uh, prior to the impossibles um, of the world. Impossible um, kind of looked at 3.0 and said, okay, we've got this base. How do we make it value add? How do we make it um, structurally sound so that it looks good? and starts to approach some of the characteristics. What we've seen now is um, 4.0 is kind of a a battle between, hey, here's a new all-star protein. Um, That one's kind of going to fall by the wayside a little bit uh, in in, um, light of 4.1, which is where we take that new protein, and there are now dozens of them, that, uh, and we're going to mix those together. So it's not just going to be all pea, all soy, or all wheat. It's going to be you know, we're going to start mixing in sunflower and other legumes and, and all sorts of other things um, that'll develop even better performance characteristics, better nutritional profiles, and better uh, uh, consumer experiences, all while kind of driving uh, the industry towards a more approximation of the meat-based products themselves. So that's what's kind of happening on the plant-based meat side. Berries still stuck in um, kind of that 3.0 right now. Um, looking at how to add that value add, um, the addition of these uh, other um, elements to to drive uh, these new proteins in these other spaces are still in that process. We've got then a branching path on both sides, which is um, precision fermentation um, and fermentation um, in general, where they're trying to grow um, actual uh, dairy and meat or approximations of dairy and meat chemicals so that they can uh, not have to work around and use other plant-based elements, but instead use lab-grown elements, which have an even smaller uh, ecological profile uh, than, than even the, some of the plant-based elements uh, because of all the byproduct streams and whatnot. So there's a lot of movement in that space. That said, there's also um, the other side of the fence. So there are dozens of indulgent items that are looking to get to market that have their own niche, whether they be substantially richer or simpler label or better um, nutritional profile, or in some cases, a lot of uh, specialty certifications. So uh, gluten-free, organic, 
um, sustainably sourced, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of movement in trying to carve out a niche where you're making something that tastes good. From the indulgent side, it has to taste good by definition. I, frankly, food in general has to taste good, but you know, people will, will go along with it for a little while and then they'll drop off to something that tastes better. But you know, from the indulgent side, what we're seeing is trying to develop niches where their uh, products are, let's say, one certification or two certifications better than everyone else on the market or slightly better um, fat profile or et cetera, et cetera. We're not seeing a whole lot of crossover of those kind of new technologies to the indulgent sector yet. We all know they're coming. Those of us that have been in the food industry for more than 10 years know that they're coming. Um, it may be another five, 10 years down the road. That's kind of an emerging um, sector. Uh, beyond that, you know, we're seeing a lot of beverages. A lot of people want to add certain things to different products. So there's a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, enhanced coffees out there, enhanced um, energy drinks or protein drinks, all of which are now at a point from a te technological perspective where they can be tastier and, and deliver on that consumer experience without having to sacrifice something in light of how their product is differentiated. So, you know, there's a lot of old uh, developed mushroom coffees out there, for example, that are just, frankly, they tasted like dirt. Um, you said mushroom they, uh, coffee? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I kind of missed the boat on that one. I mean, I know there's a lot of functional <laughs> stuff, but maybe maybe it's just because I'm not a big mushroom fan. I just don't look for that. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, and, and so I think that that's, you know, I, I can go into this ad nauseum. I could give a, a master's class on this, but uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll save your uh, listeners. Yeah, um, well, you know, I mean, that's you know, we don't want them to drop off yet. You know, we want them to, <laughs> to, to hang around a few more minutes, Jamie. Um, how difficult do you find it for these brands who try to make claims to mm -hmm. pursue that line of product development? How do you guide and steer your customers who are trying to add those, you know, nootropics and adaptogens, things like that? It seems like that would be kind of difficult to uh, prove. Um, in fact, it's not only difficult to improve, to, uh, prove it is actually illegal to put on your label in many cases. So you'll find that a lot of these brands that are out for very long or have gotten very large have, um, what, a, what amounts to a cease and desist letter. It's actually called a warning letter, uh, from the F FDA saying, Hey, you can't actually say that unless you've got clinical data to back it up and you've submitted it for review and it's been reviewed by the FDA so that you can say that. So what you find is a lot of brands pointing to each other saying, well, they're doing it. That doesn't make it right. Um, so in reality, if you have those nootropics or anything like that in there, you need to state how much, uh, you know, what your nootropics are and what quantity they're in there at and let the consumer figure out the actual value because it turns out saying relaxate or, you know, supports relaxation is actually illegal. Um, and you said illegal. Uh, Yes, it is illegal. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it's, it's something that the industry knows is a problem. Um, but that's not stopping entrepreneurs from continuing to push it because they're seeing it on other people's labels who are also putting it out there illegally. So, uh, buyers don't know any better. Um, distributors don't know any better. And so frankly, it's not their, their job to police that it's the FDA, but they're just kind of, Chugging along, they put out a couple of uh, warning letters a day as they work their way through every new product on the market. 
Yeah, I think I kind of hit on something there because when you look at functional beverages, I mean, that's pretty much what they claim. I mean, there's all kinds of these claims. So you would advise a company to kind of pick a niche that doesn't necessarily rely on those types of claims, but find something else that's substantial, that can be validated, backed up, if you were ever challenged. Uh, Well, the FDA has a list of things that you can say on your label based on what you have in there. So you have to pick from that list. Um, And I would suggest that the easiest way to do that is contact Catapult or others um, that are professionals in this space and ask them what the FDA allows you to say in your marketing materials. So it's not just on your label. It's on your website as well. It's in your sales materials. All of those things are subject to, you know, FDA uh, scrutiny. So you just got to be really careful about how you say things, which is why professional marketers make so much money, um, because they know how to say the things without saying the things that are illegal. (laughs) Damn those sales and marketing people. So tricky. So tricky. And there's there's a reason for it. Well, listen, and like you guys are good at what you do. You're the engineers, you know, you, you, I mean, of course you, you do have a, you've got a a marketing arm, don't you? Like I noticed you do a little bit of marketing. Yeah. Okay. Those other people, those other people on the other floor, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to make this not an infomercial for, uh, um, for, it's um, not, instead. Yeah. Yeah. no, 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 no. I, this, it's not an infomercial for you guys. And, but I think what it's fascinating though, because you are, you kind of do blend all those things in together. All right. Well, let's, um, let's kind of pivot a little bit into, okay, so now you've got a brand mm-hmm. that, you know, it it's coming out of the kitchen, right? It's done the trials, it's doing it really well. And now it's, now you've got to bring it to a commercial food facility, right? And this is your particular background, correct? This was kind of where, like your expertise, like how the food needs to kind of go through the systems and processes to give that entrepreneur that final product that they were getting out of their own kitchen. Right. So, you know, I, I spent a dozen years translating um, products for Campbell Soup, Del Monte Foods, and Just um, from benchtop to uh, production scale, um, which means that people were literally cooking on stoves and coming up with products. And then I would figure out how to make those uh, on the large scale equipment originally that we had available. And eventually I kind of grew that skill set into um, finding new equipment uh, and installing those in the facilities and whatnot. So um, eventually that led to finding uh, contract manufacturers that had the equipment already uh, and making it all work together to develop, uh, to translate what was developed on the bench into a consumer experience that they would have post transportation, post storage um, that would equate to uh, the intended goals for the product itself. So, um, that said, how do you go from uh, making it, let's start with your home kitchen, um, and, and we'll translate it through the different scales here. But let's say you're, you're making this at home, and everybody that you know likes it. Um, obviously, first step is to give it to people who don't know, but that's not the point of this. But you, what you want to do is then work with a commercial kitchen, which is going to give you that first level of food safety scrutiny, which is then going to allow you to uh, distribute your product. There's a whole thing about incorporating during that time frame, et cetera. What that'll do is that'll be that'll uh, the food uh, inspection will actually take place by usually the local health department. Um, it's sometimes state, sometimes it's municipal. Um, it's just a matter of what your state does. So as you are scaling and 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 uh, building this out, you're going to want to make sure that your product works when you go from the pot you always make it in into the pot that is that's larger. 
turns out surface area to volume ratio and engineering has something to do with food. So anyway, uh, getting out of the commercial uh, kitchen scale, you need to work with usually a contract manufacturer. What you're looking for there is, um, in many cases, as a as a as the operator of a commercial kitchen, uh, you are going to find yourself at a point where you are not able to make enough product in a day to keep up with your ongoing demand. Um, whether that means that uh, you know you can only spend three days a week because you have to spend the other rest of the time sourcing materials and selling, not to mention running your business and paying people and all that stuff. So, you know, when you reach that threshold, it's time to start looking at a uh, contract manufacturer. And there are many scales and many versions of contract manufacturers out there. Some have, you know, a minimum order quantity, an MOQ of a million units. You probably don't want to jump straight into that one because that means they're going to make one million units at a time. And then that's what you have to purchase and buy. Instead, you want to look at those contract manufacturers that commonly won't have websites, um, commonly won't uh, necessarily have anything other than an AOL email address that you have to get from, um, you know, Bubba who works at this other place who... A referral of some sort, right? But, you know, when you talk to these contract manufacturers, you want to talk to them about what it is that they make today. Um, Maybe not the brands, but just kind of the type of uh, products that they make and the equipment that they have so that you can assess whether or not you've looked at that type of equipment to make your product. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, But as you go into those conversations, the whole point is I've got something that's growing faster than I can keep up with. I need your help to help me scale. Can we have a look at it? And usually that'll involve going out, bringing the product, showing them um, components, sometimes some some weird ingredients they may not have heard of, but also um, working with them on, um, you know, what type of equipment they're going to use. This all assumes that you've got industrially sourced ingredients um, going into this. Uh, You don't want to go to them and say, hey, I'm sourcing this from some guy on eBay. Literally has happened. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's like that is Uh, not a viable part of your supply chain. It shouldn't be. Right. Also, Restaurant Depot is not a viable part of your supply chain. The whole point of this is that you have to have the ability to source the ingredient all the way back to the manufacturer of the ingredient should there be an actual issue. There are many, many, many recalls in the food industry, and we don't hear about a lot of them because, you know, we're very good at now tracking ingredients so that when there is an issue, we know just to recall those 10 or 12 cases, and it's not a big deal. But the Food Safety uh, Modernization Act requires us to now have traceable ingredients at all times. So what that means is you've got to have those industrially sourced ingredients before you can scale, and especially before you go into a contract manufacturer because they're legally not allowed to run ingredients that aren't uh, industrially sourced. So so basically, you, you want to make sure you've got all your ingredients, all of your packaging, um, and the way in which you make your product kind of nailed down, which you'll have coming out of this commercial kitchen. Um, as you're going to this contract manufacturer, their business model is to necessarily run product. That's how they make their money. So if they, you know, if there's a dispute, there's commonly a misalignment in understanding of how each other works. You might think, hey, my brand also only makes money if we make product and sell it. That's sort of true. Most of the time, if you, especially if you're going into retail, it's more about making the next sale, the repeat sales. The brand ambassadors, the folks who buy this every week, those are the types of people that you need to get on board um, to really kind of grow your your brand out there. So yeah, your advocates. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So you're mostly interested in highest possible quality because that's how you generate those sales. The contract manufacturer is looking to generate the minimum viable quantity, uh, quality. So there you've got this, there you, you've got this, this friction kind of already starting off. They're, they're, they're focused on lower cost. You know, how can we get this out quicker? And you're like, mm-hmm. we want higher quality. Yeah. So how do you, so that I imagine that's one of the big pitfalls. It's poor communication at the end of the day. Um, it's where people assume that, you know, the contract manufacturer is interested in your brand. They're not. They want to make sure you have a brand to make sure that the product that they make is going to sell because they're more interested in running more product. They make their money effectively, not actually, but they make their money effectively per unit. The more units they run, the happier they are. That is where they get the best benefit. The issue, though, is that when you are challenged to generate the most number of units, you try to make them as quickly and efficiently as possible, which can sometimes stand in the way of quality. So what you have to do is define what your quality level is so that they can't shortcut their way around it. They don't want to shortcut their way around it. They want to know what it is so that they can hit it because they want to make the product that conforms so that they can move on and make more product that conforms. So it's not actually a contention. It's just a nuance in the communication that a lot of people skip over, which ends up souring deals and putting some companies out of business. Mm, yeah, that sounds like a pretty big one. Yeah. Yeah, that one that one comes up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what other um, hurdles or challenges kind of come up aside from that one? Sure. Sourcing ingredients that only come in one pound pails and requiring there to be uh, 750 pounds of, ingre- of that ingredient per batch means they have to open 750 pails, which can take hours. That's just a function of sourcing the ingredient in the right format or getting the manufacturer to package it in a format that makes more sense. There's always this misunderstanding that the first time I go to a contract manufacturer, they're going to run my product perfectly. It's not going to happen. It has happened once in my entire 17 year career. (laughs) So how much money do you expect to lose that, that, that first run? So you should just expect to lose money, right? Mm -hmm. For the, the, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, in essence, there's going to be some level of trial period if the co-man knows what they're doing. If they don't, they might just run with it, in which case you're going to lose more money because it'll be an unsellable product in many cases. So what you want to look at in, uh, is realistically to go from those early conversations to product that you can actually sell. You're looking at somewhere between 50 to 100K. That works if you are a new brand and you are working with a small MOQ location And yes, I know your product only costs 25 cents worth of ingredients, but by the time you put in all the labor to convert it into an actual product and the packaging and everything like that, and then multiply it by their MOQ, and you do that two or three times for the different trials and scales and things like that, yeah, you're going to get to that $50,000 to $100,000 number pretty fast. So I would say that amount of money is what you're going to sink into your initial inventory, even if your initial inventory is only 10,000 units just because it's going to take that much money to get there. Once you get there, sure, then we can drive efficiencies of scale and start to get all those returns that were promised to us, you know, not have to babysit them. And we can just go about printing money as, as it were. But uh, there's, there's a lot of other nuances in here related to shelf life and sales cycles and how long it takes for sales to actually matriculate from when you start selling to when you actually generate cash flow. 
you know, it can be easily six months from when you start to sell to, until you see your first dollar. Um, so it, it's just going to be, it, it's going to be a slog and you're going to start door to door and eventually you'll get generate enough momentum that other people will want to sell for you. Um, there's the whole uh, broker system, which is how you generate that kind of sales support that you need to execute uh, ongoing sales successfully and things like that. So there's a whole, there's a whole thesis in there somewhere. Do you have, or, or does your company have like relationships with brokers or do you kind of stay out of that? You let them kind of figure that out on their own. It is currently outside of our scope. Okay. Um, without revealing too much. No, um, I, I was just curious. Yeah. I was just, yeah. So <laughs> for, it, the simple answer is no, no, that's their, that's kind of where they need to go and, and kind of, you know, and kind of sort that out on their own. Ask me, ask me again in 12 months. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, uh, there's an old expression. If you're not growing, you're dying. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you said before we wrap up today, because it's, it's a topic that's come up. I've, I've was just having it last night. In fact, with, uh, with my wife and some folks that we we're having dinner with this whole, um, cultured meat. And mm-hmm. it sounds really weird to me. I, I get the whole plant-based, you know, food angle, you know, using, as you were saying, you know, uh, soy, wheat and peas and legumes, all these things to kind of create something to me, that is, a, that is natural. That is organic. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on this stuff? That is a very complicated uh, question and discussion. Um, <laughs> and I asked it right here at the end. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I'll, I'll give you my personal perspective on it. Okay. So let's start with the, with the science. The science is absolutely valid. At the end of the day, we all are made up of a bunch of cells. Um, and along the way, um, different instructions are given to our different cells to turn, us, turn different cells into different things. Right. So skin cell and uh, red blood cell basically have the same uh, DNA. It's just a matter of what they were told to go do. Right. Um, Become a red blood cell or a skin cell. The trick with cellular agriculture in general is controlling what those cells are told to do. So they start with actual animal cells and then they tell those cells um, what they need to be. Uh, And so rather than develop all of the vascular systems and develop all of the digestive systems and everything like that. They tell them actually just be muscle tissue, just be meat. Um, And so because they are feeding them with the right broth that they would normally get if they were growing into those cells naturally, they save all of this effort into um, what would actually need to uh, be, be used and consumed. Uh, in order to make this um, meat actually possible. So we save the rest of the cow, so to speak. So the science makes sense. The next question is, what is the what is the target market here? And I think it's actually way more nuanced than a lot of people give it credit for. So paint a picture for you. Right now we're seeing the explosive nature of um, plant-based foods. They're growing for a variety of reasons. Um, but regardless of that, uh, 2050 is still coming when the World Health Organization said that's basically when we're going to run out of land for us to grow food to actually feed all the people that we're going to have. 2050 is coming. So regardless of whether or not you like plant-based foods, they're going to be a part of our diet going forward or else we're going to have starvation on a mass extinction level. It's not going to be everywhere, but we're going to start to have major issues. So at that point, we're necessarily 
going to have to have other alternatives. Now, plant-based certainly has its own followers, but I think a lot of those are flexitarians, those that are happy to eat some meat. The question is, are you ever fully going to convert to plant-based yourself? Probably not, right? So if the plant-based market continues to, it's not going to grow at the level it has been. It just can't. Um, But let's say it continues to grow to the point that the margins of these uh, factory farms, which necessarily pump out huge quantities of of beef, um, necessarily, uh, you know, they're they're built on razor-thin margins as a whole, right? They're not making 30% on every head um, on a net capacity. They're making, what, a fraction of a percent. If their demand drops by 10%, they're in major trouble, right? So they're gonna have to rebuild kind of how they're working, things like that. Um, some will go the, uh, value, the the cheap route and try to make value beef, which we all know what that tastes like. Um, but then there will be others that say, well, if I'm going to have to, if my margins aren't gonna be there, I'm gonna grow the best beef possible in order to uh, or raise the best heads and things like that in order to get the most value add out of the beef that I do generate. So go premium, then, the premiumization. Right? So- uh-huh. Correct. I'm expecting a premiumization of the uh, animal sector itself, regardless of what happens. I expect it to co- start costing more, especially as plant-based is able to undercut them in the not-too-distant future on a price per pound of beef. Um, so granted, it's not going to be the same quality of protein and things like that. A lot of consumers aren't going to care if they can get a burger patty for a buck or they can get a plant-based burger patty for 70 cents, they will, there are, there's a fraction of the uh, consumer base that will go for that 70% or 70 cents that would not have gone for the $2 plant-based patty, right? Mm-hmm. So what we're going to see is a premiumization of the, of the beef market. What we're then going to see is, I would imagine, large-scale farms, large-scale ranches and things like that, start to die off um, and I know that that's a you know dire prediction for a lot of people but I think instead what you'll see is um, really that kind of value-added market um, has a fixed group of people that's interested in it they're not going to consume beef five nights a week they're going to consume higher quality beef two nights a week and they're going to supplant their protein needs with with other sources so what instead what I see is this cellular agriculture solution, which by the way, we can't technically consume here in the US because it is not regulated by the, that frankly, the FDA and USDA haven't even figured out who's supposed to regulate it yet. But the idea is that if you can generate this same, uh, the, the solution for these um, uh, people who prefer animal meat, and I'm not gonna say that's a wrong thing to prefer, you're certainly welcome to your own taste profiles. But if they can generate a, an animal solution that tastes exactly like the animal, because it is the animal, it just doesn't, it wasn't grown on an animal, um, then necessarily that solution is the future for those consumers, or at least for those niches and market needs and use patterns that these flexitarians and frankly carnivores may want to uh, consider in the future. So what it's generating is an alternative. I don't think it's ever going to replace raising, raising livestock at all. I think livestock will always be a part of our history and it will always be part of our present. The question is, does it, does it have to be, and is it going to be 
the same percentage of our lifestyle going forward. And I think that's where this cellular agriculture is meant to target is to reduce that further. So what we're doing is, is extending the land that we have on the planet Earth to feed more people. Cellular agriculture allows people to still have their preferences without de facto killing people by taking food out of their mouths. Well, I appreciate getting your opinion. And again, we were just talking about it last night. There's been I read some negative news about it. I'm not going to bring it up now. I don't I don't have the article in front of me. It's just kind of an off cuff remark. But um, just been a the chemicals. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So you you know what I'm talking about. There's been some negative press about what's being used to stimulate that growth. I mean, I think you mentioned broth, you know, to feed it. I think that was the issue is like, what are they feeding those cultures? And was it healthy? And was it going to really be a benefit for people? So I think there's more to come probably in in that. I I will say the development is ongoing. The investment is ongoing. Um, I have teams of friends that are um, working on this within companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. I can guarantee you they're working towards that solution. It's just a matter of getting there. Now, the negative press doesn't help actually either side, especially since you look at the source for every last bit of uh, the information being put out by that negative press. Let me it guess. It all comes from me, the cattle ranchers. Yeah. Cattle ranchers, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, of course. Yep. yep. And they're um, the same yep. ones that attack attack plant-based food, you know, for mm-hmm. their claims. Yep, yep, you're right. And they're, so they're generating a culture war that doesn't have to be there. They're trying to find solutions to feed people. And that's where we get lost in this whole culture war issue. It's not at all about that. There's no one that thinks we shouldn't feed people if we have the capacity to do so. They're just trying to develop the capacity to do so. It doesn't have to be for everyone. No one's out for your, for your jobs. I want to have you back. We'll, we'll go into some more topics maybe in the future because we just kind of skimmed across a lot of them. And we do have a lot of emerging brands that come on the podcast. So it could be kind of interesting to you know, get your take on some of these emerging brands, how they're doing. And who knows, there's all kinds of uh, potentials, you know, that we have here on the podcast to get ideas and people together. So other entrepreneurs in the food and beverage space can listen in and see and hear, you know, how problems are being solved. We do need people to be exposed to the right companies. I was really intrigued, you know, with the kind of work that you were doing, uh, the professionals that you have across your organization that are working to help get these brands launched. I find it fascinating. So I thought you did just a fantastic job of kind of walking us through some of the challenges that uh, these new brands are going to have as they've got to get up to scale. And maybe we can go back and look at some of these trends a little more in detail next time. But until then, we'll have to leave it there. Now, if anyone did want to connect with you, Jamie, What's the best way for companies to or, or individuals to reach out? Is there a website? Well, obviously, but what's the best way to do it? Sure. So I'll go ahead and, and plug the website real quick. It's uh, catapultserve.com, C-A-T-A-P-U-L-T-S-E-R-V.com. No E on the end. Um, and likewise, on that domain, you can find my email address, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at catapultserve.com. That's the best way to, to get in touch. Um, there's also a link to our entire leadership team um, as I tend to book out uh, a little ways. So it's always good to have some uh, some folks on your team to, to back you up. Um, and so I've, I've got, uh, that's that's probably the, the, the best way to get a hold of us as a team so that we can tackle your project in an efficient, uh, uh, effective manner. So 
Um, yeah, leadership at catapultserve.com is at the bottom of our website and feel free to reach out. That is great. Jamie, I think we covered a lot in a relatively short period of time and I appreciate getting your personal opinion on the cellular agriculture space. That is an area that we are all going to be watching to see how well that does. So again, thanks for your time today, Jamie. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tony.